Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs, and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The World in 10. It's your daily roundup of the biggest stories from across the world, written by our correspondents and contributors at The Times of London. I'm Jenny Barsby. And I'm Laura Cook. Coming up on today's podcast, we find out more about a devastating train crash in India and what may have caused it. Also, why elections in a small part of northern Kosovo are causing huge issues in the region. Plus, Eva Longoria, from desperate housewives to political activist. All that coming up in the next 10 minutes. We start today's podcast in eastern India. It's the scene of a devastating train crash. At least 288 people have died. More than 900 have been injured after three trains collided in Balasore. Amrit Dillon covers India for The Times and updated us on what's thought to have happened. One passenger train came towards Balasore train station and hit a goods train. After that happened, uh, another passenger train coming fairly fast from the opposite direction crashed into the first two trains. From the images, you can see that long trains are snapped into two or three, at least 14 coaches completely overturned. I mean, that the, the scene looks um, devastating. One of the passengers on the third train uh, said that the, at the moment of the of the impact, and the impact must have been tremendous, said he thought that an earthquake had happened. Mm. Uh, some of the local villagers who came running to help said the sound sounded like um, a thunderclap. When they got there, those people who had survived were running around, covered in blood, shrieking. They said there were mutilated bodies all over. It was a pretty horrific scene. The number of dead is expected to rise, and today prayers have been said across India for the injured and families of those who've died. More than 12 million Indians travel on the trains every day. And despite government efforts to improve the rail safety, several hundred accidents occur every year on India's railways, the largest train network under one management in the world. And Amrit told us the main issue is with the sheer number of passengers. Whenever an accident happens, it's usually either human error or it's um, faulty signalling equipment. One issue is that there aren't enough trains to meet demand, which is why the death toll is always very high whenever a crash happens, Mm. because the train is meant to carry 200 passengers. It will, in fact, be carrying 300 or 400, because 
poor Indians who are the ones who use the trains cannot get a ticket easily. You have to wait months to get a ticket. So they don't wait. So if they have to go somewhere, either for a holiday or for a funeral or for a wedding or to sit an exam, what they do is they just pile on. And um, 10 people will sit in a space meant for five. The trains are absolutely overcrowded. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has now visited the scene. An initial government report has stated that a possible signal error led to the tragedy. Tensions are rising. Now calls are being made for fresh elections in northern Kosovo from European leaders who've been meeting in Moldova this week. The French President Emmanuel Macron and Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz think this will be the only way to calm the situation with Serbia. Now, the area in question is almost entirely ethnically Serb, and when looking at its makeup, it really does start to get complicated. The Times correspondent Richard Spencer explains how this situation has got to this point. There's this area of northern Kosovo that is ethnically Serb, and uh, it has very much always looked to Belgrade, to Serbia, um, over the border as, you know, its political centre, rather than to the rest of Kosovo, which is uh, ethnically Albanian, only 90% Albanian. And it's always been promised uh, that it would have some sort of autonomy, and that's never happened. Um, But, you know, the country's carried on uh, despite sort of lack of agreement about these things until now when the main Serbian party boycotted these elections. Uh, Most of the um, Serbian mayors and councillors and so on have all resigned. And the government said the elections could go ahead. And then so obviously the mayors that got elected were all ethnic Albanian. So you have four ethnic Albanian mayors of these districts who were voted on quite ludicrously low figures, uh, you know, 100 votes um, to 75 in one case. Uh, so that's what the, the row is all about. But it's, uh, it's, much, it's about much more than that, because uh, Russia backs Serbia, the West backs Kosovo, um, and there's, uh, there's a fear that this might spill over into a, a broader conflict. These elections in April were the first the Serbs boycotted. The process allowed Ilya Pechi and three ethnic Albanians to win and try to rule over a population, admittedly of under 50,000 people, almost entirely hostile to them. Pechi has told the Times he would rule for the whole district, Serbs and Albanians alike. It doesn't look like he's going to get the chance to try, though. In Rich's article in today's Times, he focuses on this one man with a very tricky decision to make. This one guy who's the mayor of Zvechan, which is where most of the trouble was, there were, there were big clashes involving uh, NATO peacekeeping forces. And he got a call from the American ambassador to say, you know, um, please don't go in. We don't want, we don't want to this to escalate. Uh, he was elected with 114 votes. Um, he's now back in his village, which is a tiny little Albanian village in the middle of this Serbian area. So he doesn't know whether to go back to work. It's surrounded by NATO peacekeepers and Serbian protesters, uh, and he's sitting there up in the hills trying to work out what to do next. Today, the Turkish Defence Ministry has said that they plan to send commandos to Kosovo tomorrow and on Monday, and they've called for restraint and constructive dialogue to calm the situation which could harm regional security and stability. And to get a greater understanding of this complex story, just head to the Times online and Richard Spencer's article will give you a real insight into how it's unfolding. He's just 25 years old, champion of the 2021 and 2022 Formula One Grand Prix. 
And according to today's Times of London, he's already achieved everything he wants. Here's Max Verstappen. And in a wide-reaching interview with our chief sports writer, Owen Slot, the Dutch-Belgian opens up about everything from childhood holidays with Michael Schumacher, Uncle Michael, as he calls him, and the time his mum, a successful go-karter, beat Christian Horner, the boss at Red Bull, in a race. It's an enlightening insight into this young man who followed his father into Formula One but doesn't appear to see a long-term future behind the wheel, reiterating that in the driver's press conference ahead of this weekend's Spanish Grand Prix. My goal was to win a championship. I did that. Now it's about, yeah, just also enjoy the moment, what you're in. Um, of course, I try to win as many races as I can, but I, I'm never, I've never really been someone who was trying to break records or whatever. But with four wins out of six so far this season, Max may well end up being crowned champion for a third time, even if it's not something he's actually aiming for. Now from Wisteria Lane to Washington, and Eva Longoria, once a household name for her role in Desperate Housewives, is now a director, entrepreneur and political activist, campaigning for the Democrats and speaking out on behalf of Latina women. In today's Times, Helena de Bertadano writes how there's no stopping her. Since her eight-year, 180-episode run on Wisteria Lane, Longoria now explains how she hosts a travel and food show for CNN, directs her first feature film, runs two charities, advertises L'Oreal, runs her own production company, has her own tequila brand. Oh, and she's also raising a four-year-old son. She's currently publicising her new film, Flamin' Hot, which launches next week. And she's been telling Helena how she fought off stiff competition to direct it. She said, I knew I was going to have to work twice as hard and out-hustle everybody. She did it, though. The heads of Searchlight said, the movie you made is exactly the movie you pitched in the room. And many times that just doesn't happen. This article is a great read and shows a dynamic and inspirational woman. One line sums her up, I think, Laura. One would be foolish to underestimate Longoria. Now, with a look ahead to tomorrow, you'll remember former FBI Director James Comey, sacked by Trump in 2017 in what was seen as a petulant response to the FBI investigating alleged Russian interference in the 2016 general election. Well, he's been speaking to the Sunday Times, Sarah Baxter. He led me into his study in what is otherwise a rather grand house, but his study is full of mementos. And he proudly showed me this Union Jack that had been taken down from the MI5 building by the Thames on the day that he was sacked by President Trump. And Andrew Parker, the then head of MI5, sent it to him with a sort of kind note thanking him for his service. It's one of his most prized possessions, he said. And you can, of course, read Sarah's interview with him in full in the Sunday Times magazine. That is it for today's World in 10. We're back tomorrow.